Welcome back to the Unstressable Podcast. I'm your host, Alice Law, and this podcast is a series of amazing conversations with incredible people talking about what makes them unstressable from some of life's greatest challenges and the greatest stresses and losses they've had to overcome and how they came back from them so that you can become unstressable through yours. In this episode, I'm joined by the wonderful Britt Frank. Britt is a psychotherapist, a speaker, and a best-selling author of her book, The Science of Stuck, Breaking Through Inertia to Find Your Path Forwards. Prior to becoming a functional adult, she says she was a self-described hot mess of a human, and Britt really knows what it's like to be stuck and how to crack what she calls the procrastination code. I loved this episode because we talked all about how to get yourself unstuck, why we get stuck, trauma, what that really is, what it isn't, and it was filled with incredible insights and really relatable things that people can really have an understanding of why we get into that place of feeling stuck and what you can actually do to get yourself out of it. I hope that you enjoy. I'm so excited to talk to you all things trauma because I love this topic. I honestly think it's a massively misunderstood thing and we really associate it with some of the larger traumas in life and I can't wait to go into actually what trauma really is and just all the varieties and everything. But first of all, I'd love to know, how did you end up becoming a trauma expert? You know, what drew you to trauma in the first place? Well, my trauma sort of drew me to trauma, but I didn't know I had any. So I just, you know, bebopped around my life for years thinking I was crazy. And I did random jobs in advertising and I worked in production for media and just sort of a little tornado spinning around. And eventually I found my way to good help. And when I started to get better and things started to change. I was like, oh my God, everybody, does everybody know that this is how our brain works? Does everybody know that? Like everyone needs to know this like right now. So I quit my job, went to grad school and pivoted my early thirties. <laughs> nice. So, cause so when you talk about trauma of yourself, you know, what is the greatest stress or loss that you've personally been through and had to overcome? Oh, that's the first time anyone has asked me that question. Oh, I love it so much. How to answer that. The biggest trauma I've had to overcome. Well, there's all the fun stuff like drug addiction and domestic violence and sexual assault. And I have all of that. But I think the biggest trauma for any human to overcome is this idea that once you're grown, there is nobody coming to parent you. So if you had good parents, your time to be fully cared for is over. And if you did not have good parents, you don't get a redo at it, at least not like on this incarnation, maybe in another life. So I think the biggest trauma is recognizing that childhood is over, good, bad, or ugly, you don't get a redo. And so you have to grieve it and move on. So everyone gets, you know, access to that trauma, regardless of whether or not they've had a good or a bad life. So how did you realize you had access to that trauma? (laughs) I didn't even know I had a dysfunctional childhood until like my mid twenties when I was sharing something about my family of origin and a counselor looked at me like, holy crap, Britt, that's not normal. Like, what do you mean? Like, that's just, you know, that's just how we did things. No, Britt, that's actually not normal. And then we started unpacking it and it was like, holy crap, my childhood was not normal. And I didn't know that. And then once I learned that, it took a minute to accept that was true. And then an even longer minute to accept that I get to grieve that and no one can do that for me, but me. Are you able to tell us a bit more about that? You know, what was the childhood that you had that was so abnormal for those listening? So I think for people who have very clearly identifiable quote, bad childhoods, it's easy to see, you know, people who grow up enslaved or under oppression or the children growing up in like Ukraine, it's very easy to, when you see that kind of horrific, what humans can do to each other, it's easy to look at that and go, yes, that's trauma. But when you look at a fully quote, functional family, parents are married, nobody is blowing things up in my street. We had enough to eat. You know, the lights were always on. It's really tricky to look at that and say, well, there's trauma there too. And so I was a big, uh, you know, like this isn't, I don't have trauma. Nothing bad is happening to me. But as a kid, 
everything can be normalized, including sexual abuse. So sexual abuse isn't always violent. And that's the other reason it's confusing for children, because if you're not being violently violated, your body is going to respond in a positive way because that's how we are wired. And you're going to think that that's not only normal, but it's desirable and it's good. And then you're going to grow up feeling absolutely that shit. Can I swear on here? Sorry. (laughs) So that's, and people are horror. I know as a therapist, I hear this all the time. People who are like, I feel like I am just evil because when I was, you know, abused as a child, I had orgasms. And it's like, that's not your fault. That's how our bodies are designed. If you're not being violently violated, your body is going to respond biologically with pleasure. And that is hella confusing for people who are trying to, you know, untangle this trauma thing. So that was my experience. Well, it's such an amazing um, way of putting that because I've actually never heard that even be spoken of in that way. And it's such a such a little educational moment, I think, for people listening because you you do automatically a lot think of exactly what you said, like sexual abuse being violent and being something that is the opposite of, of that exact thing. So how does that sort of trauma you know, confuse you growing up? What was that experience for you to sort of deprogram yourself from that essentially? Well, growing up, it was just, that was my normal. And so I started acting out sexually from a very young age, watching porn from a very young age, you know, being incredibly in a very age inappropriate way, doing things, watching things, being exposed to things that I had no business seeing or doing. Um, But that was my normal. So, you know, that's just like, Everybody does that. And then as I grew and I had more experiences, that also got normalized. Everybody does that. It wasn't until my relationships started getting into like the Dateline NBC, like tabloid kind of crazy that I was able to see this is bad. Something is not right here. Something is not right inside of me. Um, I need to do, not that it's my fault, not that I manifested my trauma, like that's crap. But like, clearly I keep finding myself drawn to these people, places and situations that have gotten increasingly more dysfunctional, more chaotic, just more off the rails. And once it got to the point where I couldn't deny it anymore, that's when I started changing it. Yeah. So, okay. Amazing. Let's talk about trauma then. Yeah. So what is trauma to you? So I love the definition from Dr. Peter Levine, and he created the somatic experiencing model, which that's a very la-di-da, multisyllabic word for traumas in your body. It's not just in your mind. And he defines trauma as anything that is too much, too fast, or too soon. So anything that's too much, too fast, too soon, and I'll add, or not enough, can register in your brain as trauma. Like in simpler terms, anything that overwhelms your brain's processing capacity is going to get stuck in your body as a symptom or as an emotion or as a body sensation. And, you know, trauma is not an external circumstance. Trauma is an internal process. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. It's like, well, I was never assaulted. Therefore, I don't have trauma. Well, yeah, but you may have had a surgery where the anesthesiologist messed up and all of a sudden things happened. And that's a type of trauma. Or you may have been, I don't know, in a fender bender. And for whatever reason, that very minor accident is causing you nightmares and you're you know, getting the shakes and all of a sudden you're panicking every day. And I don't know why that minor car accident was traumatic for your system. That's a combination of environment and genetics and lots of things that we're never going to be conscious of. But anything that comes at us has the capacity to traumatize us. Not everything will. You know, we're not like walking around wounded, like, oh my God, everything is going to trigger me. But anything has the capacity to traumatize us because lots of things are too much, too fast, too soon, or not enough. So... So what do you sort of define as the difference in, say, like, you know, trauma with a big T and trauma with a little T? Because I think a lot of people are unaware that we all have trauma, like no matter if you think you've had a perfect life and you might have been very, very lucky so far at this point in your life. But still, you are reacting from some things of little traumas, if that makes sense. So what is your sort of take on that and how do you explain that to people? So, I mean, the working definition of big T and little T trauma is that big T trauma is the stuff you think of as trauma and little T trauma is the stuff you wouldn't think of as trauma. But I actually don't like that 
like I don't like that language to describe it because when you say little t it makes it sound like it's not that big of a deal and it shouldn't be that big of a deal so I don't like to use the big t little t model I like to just think of trauma as a spectrum and anything on the spectrum of life can create trauma and anything can create like extreme trauma or low-grade trauma. But any events I think can be traumatic. And what I think is a little T trauma might be a big T trauma for someone else. So I, I don't like categorizing them. But if trauma is defined as like brain indigestion, it's like for whatever reason, your brain can't break down and process an experience, then everybody, everyone counts. Like there is no human born of woman who doesn't at some points have something coming at you that your brain can't process. So Trauma is not just for like those people. It's for everybody. And that doesn't mean that all trauma is the same. Some, I said that once and someone sent me like this really mean message. Like, are you saying that like my sexual assault is the same thing as her fender bender? I'm like, no, like, no, of course not. Not all trauma is the same, but all humans at some point to some level are going to have it. So we need to normalize it. And, you know, the, the flip side of that is now, you know, I see this on Instagram, trauma is everywhere and everything is trauma and everything is going to traumatize us. It's like, let's just call it brain indigestion because that's really what it is instead of this word that sort of has lost its meaning because of the overuse. So what do you define then as brain indigestion? Like what happens when you get brain indigestion really? Sure. Well, just like food indigestion, you know, like if you eat contaminated fish, you're probably going to puke, but you could also get a stomach ache from anything that you eat because your digestion system is an automatic process. And so the way that your brain interprets and breaks down and metabolizes our experiences is also an automatic function. And so it can be anything. And how do you know if you have brain indigestion? Just like, how do you know you have stomach indigestion? It hurts, you're cramping, you're gassy and you're bloated and it just feels gross. If you have brain indigestion, you might feel anxious all the time. You might feel depression. You might feel like you're completely revved up and you have all of this nervous energy and no identifiable reason why. So, you know, what we call in a mental health world, like pathological mental illness diagnosis is often the result of unaddressed trauma. So like, I think most of the time, not all of the time, but 85, 90% of the time when people are labeled with an illness, what the people labeling them are missing is the trauma factor. Yeah, I so believe that. I think it's it's amazing how many people are walking around traumatized without realizing and then traumatizing other people it. through that. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's so true. And I think people feel so guilty, especially right now, about identifying their trauma. Like, I don't have a right to feel this because it's not, you know, the people down the street have it so much worse. And that's great perspective, you know, like perspective on, yeah, you have it pretty good, all things considered. Perspective is useful, but perspective allows for multiple realities to coexist. Perspective is I recognize I have it pretty good and this is where I am in pain and this is where things did happen to me and I can still hold space for you. The comparison thing is you have it worse, therefore I don't get to have any. And the comparison binary is so inefficient and unnecessary. Yeah, I was going to say actually when you talk about the comparison binary, is that you know what do you find is the is wrong with the way that people approach trauma these days like what are we doing wrong when we sort of are misunderstanding <laughs> trauma <laughs> what, is, what are we doing wrong and this is not like a personal if you're doing any of the things we're talking about, you know, no shame. It's like largely this is a systemic issue, not mm -hmm. a personal issue, because we were all taught the same things, you know, like your thoughts create your reality and mind over mood and mindset is the only thing and it's everything and all that's important. But the mental health world largely ignores the fact that like from the neck down, there's like a whole thing happening there. We have bodies and we have systems and we have organs and tissues and lots of things going on that contribute to our overall like sense of well-being in the world. So what are we doing wrong with trauma? We either don't talk about it enough or we talk about it too much. And then suddenly everything is trauma. I'm like, that's not trauma. I'm like, sometimes 
a busted elbow is a busted elbow. Sometimes a skin knee is a skin knee. It's not like you're manifesting the pain because your mother didn't hug you. And that's why the universe put the rock in front of you that you scraped your knee. It's like, okay, like, let's just, sometimes things just are what they are. Trauma is not, it's not the answer to, or the cause of everything. So I think the too much or not enough is the dilemma with trauma and the misunderstanding about what it is. So, I mean, when you talk about like those examples are obviously very physical examples than even before. And I think that's what a lot of people associate trauma with, you know, the physical accident, the rape, the, you know, traumatic death or illness, the scrape of the elbow, like you just said. But what about the mental traumas that people just really aren't aware of that are happening a lot? Sure. And really the world we live in right now is inherently traumatic. And so some people don't realize that if you are ingesting news all day, every day on your phone, on your screen, on TV, on the radio, your brain does not know the difference after a minute between I am reading this thing that's happening to them versus it is happening to me. And secondary trauma, which just means it's not your thing that you experienced, but because you're witnessing it in whatever you know form, it's going to traumatize your brain. Now, people have trouble with that one too. They're like, well, you're not, are you just saying we should stick our heads in the sand and ignore the pain in the world? And again, it's like, no, that's, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Like everyone should just be an ass and ignore the reality of pain. Like, no, I am saying that there is a limit to our capacity to take in bad information. There's only so much bad news our brains will take before it's just going to shut down. And if you are trying to be an activist in every single area where activism is needed, you are going to shut down. You're going to freeze. You're going to be useless to yourself, the people you love and like community at large. And so we need to honor the brain's design is not equipped to handle all of the information that we have access to. So you have to pick and choose. What are you going to care about? Where are you going to choose? And that feels awful because it's like, if I choose to care about these three things, that means there's 50,000 things over there that I'm not caring about. Oh my God, I'm a terrible person. It's like, well, if all of us picked our things that we had the capacity to care about, we would probably all be covered, but we're not trained how to do that. (laughs) That's so true. It's like, if you actually focus more on one thing instead of spreading your sort of keyboard warrior style across the internet to everything that might actually make a difference but (laughs) exactly Exactly. but it feels awful it's like oh my god I'm a heartless sociopath because I am not care it's like yes but you have a physical brain that can again only ingest so much information it's like our stomach you can only eat so much food before you're going to puke you cannot ingest the amount of bad news that is in the world right now and expect to be functional to be mobile or to be useful in any capacity yeah so how okay so how do you how do you see that trauma shapes things for people how do people view the lens of life differently when they're working through trauma what is the kind of Mm. that reality sort of warped almost sense of like that's not actually how things are that's your reaction to something that you're not even aware of that makes sense it's so wild it's like being in a fun house with all those distorted mirrors but not knowing that like your mirror is distorted trauma really puts us in a very constricted defensive small you know state of protection or it puts us in it poofed up I'm going to take up all of the space and you know we see that with like narcissism right it's like I am going to take up all of my space and all of your space and I'm going to either be completely domineering or I'm going to be really small and try to put myself in a box and neither of those states is our authentic inspired you know natural state of being it's really hard to connect with people when you're shrinking down Or if you're poofing up, Brene Brown talks about, I think the quote she said is, you know, don't shrink down, don't poof up, just stand in your sacred space. I'm paraphrasing. She said something like that. And it's true. Trauma really distorts things where we feel like we have to shrink or we feel like we have to take up more space. And it's really hard to live connected and joyfully from that place. You can't be in defensive mode all day and access happiness and love and joy and connection and all these things that we say we want. Yeah. So, I mean, when people overreact to things, I largely see, you know, there's moments when you think, God, you must have been traumatized about something if this is a big issue for you right now, because it's it's not. But I've realized that you really think that is, you know, in that moment, it's like that person's comment was not actually offensive, but you've taken it so 
badly that something's obviously made you react that way from your past and so how do I sort of like subconscious beliefs get created I think people are very unaware that like trauma creates these beliefs in our subconscious that like are trying to keep us safe um from that event and what sort of can you talk people through that just sort of like an example of sort of an emotional situation where their brain might have made up a subconscious belief and it now affects how they sort of proceed in the world around those things Sure. And I'll I'll make up something just super crazy. So it's easy to see. And the thing is about our brains that we need to know is that our brains take in information every second of every minute that we are alive on this planet. So whether or not we consciously know things, our body is taking in information all day. So here's, here's an example. Let's say when you were a baby, you had a green nursery. So your nursery where your crib was, was painted green. Okay. Every night, your parents would scream and yell at each other inside your nursery. Now you're a baby. You're never going to cognitively remember your parents screaming at each other because you don't have the brain structure to even remember that. But every day for the first year of your life, your parents would get drunk and scream at each other in your green nursery. Now I have a green office. So let's say 20 years later, you are struggling with your weight and you're struggling with an addiction and you're struggling with anxiety and you don't know why. And you come in my green office and you sit down and for quote, no reason, you start panicking and you start shaking and sweating. You're not going to not like consciously understand that my green office reminded your brain of your green nursery. And now it's created a panic response. You're never going to have access. There's not enough hypnotherapy, ayahuasca on the planet to give you access to every single memory. But the nice part is, is you don't need to. So if someone's in my office panicking, I don't need to know why. All I need to do is say, okay, for whatever reason, your brain has a very scary story attached to what's going on in this room. So let's slow that down and let's get curious about what might feel safer. Do you want to face the door? Do you want to switch places with me? Do we need to sit further apart? And playing with those spatial cues, playing with our environment will help us solve the problem, even if we don't know the origin of the problem. But like, that's a way that fear of green can get implanted in your subconscious. And it's not like a mystical spiritual process. It makes sense. You know, your body is going to store that information and there's way too much information for us to ever have access to all of it. So you do not need to know your story to start healing from it, which is such good news. That is good news. Yeah. Cause like you say, for a lot of people, they don't, you know, I have people in my life now who have blocks and they're like, I don't understand why I'm like this, but yeah. And it's like, well, you don't actually need to consciously remember something. Something so random will have happened. You know, it's about working through it. You don't need to sort of figure out that exact thing. Exactly. I hate the why question as the starting place. Like I enjoy Mm. figuring out why we do what we do and what happened to me. But when you start with why am I like this? Why am I feeling this? You're just going to feel worse. Let's just start with the assumption that something happened. Hell if I know what it was. It doesn't really matter right now. What matters more than why is what is going to help your brain feel safer. What people, what places, what colors, what TV shows, what music, of all of the things available to you now, don't worry about why this is a problem. Worry about what will help your brain feel a little less active. And that's a much more effective question than what's wrong with me? Why do I feel this? I don't know why you feel that, but you do. And there's a reason and we don't need to know the reason. Let's figure out what to do instead of spinning on the why this is happening. So what do you do with your process? So how does it differ to, you know, standardized therapy? What is the sort of different pieces that you've put together that make up your, yeah, your process and why it's so effective? (laughs) So I think the healing process is so dependent on the person in the process. So, you know, my approach to healing doesn't necessarily mean it's the right one or the only one. You know, for me, I had access to really good psychotherapists. So I did that. And I had access to, you know, the ability to 
change my job so I could work for myself and not have to be triggered by not everyone has that luxury of being able to, you know, scrape by and change their job or to go to a therapist or whatever. But the, the question is what's available to, you know, if you're sitting there listening and you're like, what do I do? Well, let's start with what are the options available to you in your unique ecosystem? Then once we know what's available, then we can start. Cause if I sat here and said, everyone should do somatic therapy and you don't have access to a somatic therapist, then you're out of luck. And fortunately there's a bajillion, you know, connection with other people, body work, breath work, yoga, regular psychotherapy, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. I'm not opposed to that, but like there's a a thousand ways of getting to what is true for you about you and how to heal from that. It's, you know, more like what, what are your realistic choices? And then of those, what sounds reasonable today? But tell me about yours because you're here <laughs> and I want to know about this because otherwise, <laughs> what my is your process? process? Yeah. So I did restructure my life in a way that makes sense. I don't play nicely with others in the work environment. I'm great at collaborating. Like you have a podcast. I'm happy to come on and chat with you. I'm happy to go into companies and talk to their employees. But at the end of the day, I want to leave and I want to be alone in a room by myself and not have to be in charge of anybody or whatever. That's just not how I'm wired. I'm an introvert and I, I do better like orbiting my little space cruiser alone and I'll land, I'll visit and then I'll take off. So I spend a lot of time alone, uh, an inordinate amount of alone time. And I'm married and I have a wonderful husband and he is an extrovert and he loves to meet new people and try new things. And he's happy to go do that. And I'm happy to stay home alone with my book and my dog and hang out. And so I have a therapist. I do therapy. I have a lot of like physical self-care type practices. You know, I have hobbies and I work out in a way that is pleasing to me. I don't go to the gym because the gym to me is just miserable. So I do circus as a hobby. (laughs) (laughs) I hate it so much. So it's like, if you hate the gym, don't go to the gym. I like hanging from trapezes and spinning on aerial hoops. And that is like, does double duty of it's a hobby and it's a workout and it's something fun. And I can wear sequins and sparkles and dance to Disney music. So it's like, that's what I do. And I have very, very good friends. And I have such a high value on the, you know, I keep my inner circle small, but they are very, very rich in terms of the quality and the depth of those relationships. So that's what I do for my process. I love that. And so the process you give other people in terms of somatic therapy and things like that, what, what is somatic therapy? Because that's a concept that people won't really be aware of, you know, even sure. somatic means. <laughs> somatic I didn't know what it meant either. Someone was like, you should try somatic therapy. I'm like, what? So what? So what therapy? So when people think of therapy, they think of like, you know, the couch and the tell me how you're feeling and tell me what you think and let's challenge your thoughts. But most people know when their thinking is illogical, but that does not solve the problem. It's like, I know it's, you know, it's completely unreasonable for me to be afraid to answer my door, you know, when the food gets delivered, but nevertheless, I am. So instead of trying to logic your way out of whatever your problem is, somatic therapy really focuses on the body sensations, the body responses, the fight, flight, freeze impulses. And it's a lot of just practicing, recognizing that you live in a body. Like I lived up in my head for so long. It was, you know, my first few somatic sessions were, were basic. Like, hey, Britt, why don't you just touch your arm and recognize that you have one? Just doing that would make me start crying. I felt absolutely just completely insane. I'm like, why am I crying? It's just my arm. But if you've not been taught how to live in a physical body, it's going to be really disorienting. This idea that this is where you live and this body is yours and here's what it likes and here's what it doesn't like and here's how it likes to move. Here's where it likes to sit. Here's how it likes to sit. I mean, we get down to really, really basic stuff when we're starting out. All of this high level, my childhood and my attachment style and my mother and my father. It's like, let's just start with, are you comfortable on the chair? How's the distance between us? But again, we're not taught how to do that. So people get, I'm not paying you to move the furniture around. I'm like, yeah, but your brain is not going to let you do anything if we don't get 
our orientation to each other right first. And so learning how to say, hey, where do I want to sit in this room? Where do, you know, I had social anxiety for so many years and it was, you know, not try to think your way out of it. It's where in a room full of people can I stand and not feel like I need to panic and run. And that's really, really the crux of somatic therapy is honoring, recognizing, and practicing what makes you feel safe, what makes you feel unsafe, what makes you feel small and constricted, what makes you feel nice and expansive or poofed up and overexpansive. Um, and it's such a, a new, it's not new, but it's new to sort of how people approach mental health. And I never heard about somatic therapy growing up or through grad school, or like through all of my 20s, it was only until I met someone who knew about it that told me about it, that I found my way to it. And it's absolutely phenomenal to, you know, honor our bodies in order to feel better in our minds. Yes, I was about to say, is it focus a lot, obviously, more on the body than the mind, but that the body ends up healing the mind because it holds the sort of score of what the mind is holding? Is that the kind of theory yeah. behind it? Exactly. And it's only one way of working. And if you, t- if you only do somatic therapy and some people do, they don't want to deal with their minds at all. So they just do all of the yoga and all of the breath work and all of the somatic work. And it's like somatic therapy, we call it bottom up, meaning work with the body to heal the mind. But like bottom up is half the story. You also need to work top down. And that's when you do need to work with your mind and your thoughts and your thinking and your beliefs and your stories. So if you're only working top down, you miss out on half of the healing. If you only work bottom up, you miss out on this half. So we actually, we need both. How do you do the other half then the the top down half in terms of like recreating beliefs for people? Because obviously a lot of the time people don't even have awareness as to what beliefs are holding them back because they're subconscious limiting beliefs so how do you deal with those for myself personally or with clients with clients yeah (laughs) well it depends on what they're willing to do there's a lot when it comes to thinking work the thinking work is generally easier to access than the body work because you don't need a specialist and you don't need a therapist to get a workbook on cognitive behavior or therapy and just start filling in and let's start with an inventory. What, what do you believe? You say you believe this, but all of your actions are indicating that you actually don't. So let's start with what do you believe? And then we go a level deeper and it's like, which of those beliefs are working, which are causing you pain and distress. And then we drill down further. Okay. Where did that belief come from? And is that a belief you want to continue to hold? What other possibilities might there be? And it's a lot of inventory. And I love the thinking work because it gives you a break from your feelings. You know, if you're thinking about your thinking, you don't really have to feel too much. That's why top down is a nice all you know, alternating top down with bottom up. So you have a break from all the gross feelings. Like I'd much rather do a worksheet with what do I believe and where did it come from? than how do I feel and what's happening in my body? Blech. <laughs> I think that's the problem though, isn't it? That so many of us have been taught to not accept our negative feelings and to repress them. And then they get stronger and louder. And if we just allowed them in, they would move through us quicker. But why do you why do you think, do you think that's changing now that people are becoming more aware of how we feel or is it still a long way to go? I think culturally, we've come a long way in the field as far as providing information. Individually, I think it's really scary to go inside and ask yourself, what do I feel? What do I actually think? It's terrifying. And if you don't have an environment that can support that kind of exploration, you're not going to do it. And I get that. You know, if you've got five kids to feed and you have no idea how you're going to pay rent and you have a, a parent who's needing your care because they're sick, it's not a good time to go inside and start working with your deep, dark shadow side stuff. And, and people need to be very, very compassionate with themselves. You can only go inside as far as your, like your external environment will support. Otherwise you're just going to traumatize yourself. So I think that work is scary, number one. And it also requires, you know, a supportive enough environment to even begin, you know, for some people, trauma healing isn't even an option because of lack of access to things. And that's not a personal failing. That's just, again, it's a systemic problem. It's an environmental problem. But I tell people, be very careful not to say that you're sick if the problem is external. You know, what we call mental illness is often systemic illness. And that doesn't mean that there's nothing wrong. It just means the problem is not sourced inside of you. It means the problem is out here 
there and we need to adjust to that. Yeah, I love that. So when you talk of that, because what comes to mind for me is like the difference of people between post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic growth. You know, why do two people who are in a very similar environment and circumstances in life, why does one person react to the death of a child with complete PTSD and shut down and go into grief for years? And why does one take it the opposite and use it to motivate them and grow them beyond capacity, even though they'll always love and grieve for that child? So why, why does that happen? Because I find that fascinating. Well, the, the short answer is I have no idea, but the clinical answer is even though it looks like they're in the same environment with the same circumstances, they have an entire history of family of origin, the way they were grown, their genetic makeup, their childhood, their early attachment systems, the all of the things. There's so many factors that go into our resilience, our grit, our ability to grow through trauma versus be squished down by it. I have never seen a case where it's just like a, you're just weak, you're just, you know, morally deficient and you're broken. Um, I don't actually fundamentally believe in brokenness in terms, you know, our, our actual bodies can get broken, but I don't believe that the core of who we are can be broken. Injured, sure. Broken, no. And so why do two people react differently? Because there is an entire like scroll of factors that we don't know that are contributing to whether or not they're going to be able to grow or heal or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it comes back to that thing of we're all the product of our own experiences, right? But in terms of post-traumatic growth, why do you, what do you think creates post-traumatic growth then? I think having one, the right information, if you don't know that our brains are not these set in stone kind of machines, if you don't know that your brain can create new neural pathways, if you don't know that your brain can heal and you, you actually fundamentally believe that you're broken, that's going to contribute to more of the same. So I think not having access to accurate information can keep people really, really stuck and shut down. That's a big one. And then willingness to be uncomfortable. The growth process is awful. It's terrible. And if people think, yay, I'm going to make a good change. Therefore, now I'm going to feel great. They're going to quit because the initial process of growing and changing and healing is awful. It feels worse than the injury sometimes. And so if you're not going to prepare yourself for that reality, you're not going to be able to stay the course when it gets shitty, which it will, because it does. That process is messy. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think that's a good point to tell people because it is, it is the truth, isn't it? Like sometimes it's almost like you feel like you're going to die from the, from the process of healing before even after. Yes, it's so, so, it's like detoxing off of a drug. You know, like there's a degree to which if you're a heroin addict, you understand in order to quit, it's going to be brutal. You are going to go through the most like hell-based physical detox that you've ever experienced. But knowing that on the front end can make it a little bit not easier, but you can create an environment where that's the expectation. But with our emotional well-being, we don't set ourselves up for the brutality of the healing process. It's like, you're not going to get up and go to work tomorrow now that you're making a good change and feel awesome. The healing process, sometimes healing feels like breaking. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think it's, it's also, I find it really interesting looking at the side of, okay, trauma will happen to everyone. And it's funny because when we think of the big, bigger traumas of life, whether it's, you know, the death of a family member or someone dying in a horrible way and all these different things, there was a great TED talk by a resilience expert who said, you know, everyone says, why me? And it's more actually, why not me? Because there's so many of us in the world. Of course, something's going to happen to all of us, multiple things to many of us. But a lot of the time we can go into that victim mentality straight away when something happens to us, you know, why me? Why this? Why that? So, I mean, how do you go about sort of helping people to create that understanding of like resilience around that as opposed to being a victim of what can always happen to anyone? And the why me question, I think, is a very tricky one because we want to hold compassionate space for people's pain. And so, you know, the victim mentality, I mean, people can be legitimately victimized and you can honor your wounds without going into that victim mode. But if you're asking the question, why me? Again, it's 
how is me answering that going to even help you? So um, I'll use your example, the death of a child. Why me? I don't know. Is there any answer to that question that's going to make this better? There's no answer to the why me that is going to make you feel better. That's going to give you energy to make changes. There's just no good answer to the why me question. So let's not ask it. Instead of why me, let's start with what do you need right now? How can I be useful to you? How can we create your environment in such a way that if you need to be a complete mess for the next couple of months, that we can support you in doing so? That's why we need connection and community and each other. And no one heals in a vacuum and isolation. It just We're not designed to do that. Even as an introvert, I recognize I need people and I love my people and I super value my people. But, you know, the why me victim question, when I have that sitting in front of me, I just say to them, we can answer that, but what does that change? So let's pick a different question to start with. The existential why me, I don't know. No one's going to, no one's going to be able to answer that. You know, people who are very, you know, adherent to their religious beliefs might have an answer for that. But if we're just talking human to human, I don't know why you, but like, that's not moving you anywhere good. So do you want to stay here or do you want to get moving? And if you want to stay here, fine. Like I'll sit with you in the why me as long as you want. And then eventually you're going to get tired of that. And then we can start moving, but it's, it takes as long as it takes, especially with grief and with death. You know, if it's the death of a child, I understand that why me is going to be part of that. And I'll sit with people in that until they realize that there's no answer to that question that has any medicinal healing value whatsoever. Yeah, I love that. It's an interesting sort of flip on the why me question that is so common to people, like I said, in their reactions a lot of the time, even in the smaller things of life. It's like, why me again? You know, these kind of things that play on our human mind, but it's looking at the other side like you say okay what what should we do instead what how can we change your reaction and response as opposed to like what's actually happened because that's where the power lies right exactly and the why me question i also hear underneath that question is this yearning for a parent right like why me somebody tell me what it's what's going on what i need to do and again as grown people there are no adults coming to save us from our humanity So when you ask why me, what I hear is that very deep desire to have a parent present. And so that adds to the grief. If you're in, quote, victim mode, it's because you're in a childlike state. And if you're in a childlike state, it's because you're needing a parent or you feel like you do. And so, again, that helps have some compassion on the dilemma. I find that really interesting that you say that that theory that you talked about earlier, how we all suddenly have this trauma of not having a parent, whether they're departed or whether they're you know still here and not active or whether we never had them and we're suddenly like oh my god it's me (laughs) what's going on so how do you think we can all navigate that common fate if it was up to me you know we have all of these rituals birthday parties and weddings and funerals and graduations and there is no established ritual for poof you're grown there are no more parents that can love you unconditionally. I mean, like if you have a good parent as an adult, you can still have a relationship with them, but your time to be unconditionally taken care of and loved and supported and been given all the things that you need, that time is over. And so I'm a big advocate of create a ritual. If it doesn't exist, which it doesn't make one up and let's actually get into a state where we can start to process one name, the truth you're grown. There are no more parents in the way that you want Two, now that you know that what rituals make sense for you you know do you want to have a funeral for your childhood that's an exercise that I do that's super gross and unpleasant but very powerful right you're not having a funeral for the death of a child you're having a funeral for the end of the time known as childhood and the funeral ritual is the closest one to honoring an ending so let's just take that and make it appropriate you can have a funeral for the end of a relationship you can have a funeral for the end of a marriage why not the end of childhood it's dark but there's a lot of healing potency in that so when you say do a funeral ritual what does one look like for that to say you know the end of a relationship the end of a childhood (laughs) so for the end of a childhood and, and again it's some of the most powerful and some of the just ickiest hardest 
blah kind of work that I, I do. And it's an honor to witness it and be part of it. But, you know, what happens at a regular funeral? There are generally flowers and there's generally music and there's generally some sort of speech honoring the, the, the person that we're grieving. So do that too. You know, dear younger Brit, I'm so sorry that you got this. And I just want you to know that it should have been this way. And, you know, as we're saying, you never say goodbye to your childlike parts, you know, like your inner child is always with you. So it's not like you're grieving the loss of a part of yourself. You're grieving the loss of a chronological phase of time. So in the funeral ritual, you have a eulogy and then you let that little part know, but you get to come live with me now. Like I, I can't ever give you year three over again. I can't ever make year six a good one, but like you're with me now. So we can make this year a good one. And next year I can make sure you're safe. And the year after that, I can make sure that you're fed actual food and given love and everything that you need. So I love that. That's such an interesting idea. And it's, um, it's a nice, like you say, ritual for sort of like closure for certain times and parts of your life that I think people can find really hard to let go of and make sense of and sort of, yeah, have that process. It's, it's a fascinating one for people to, to take away. From that <laughs> Let's have more funerals for things. Yeah, literally. It. it sounds horrible. It sounds awful, but it's like, what's the alternative? It's like mm. the end of a relationship. You don't have to have a funeral for it, but how are you going to start to process that this is over? If you don't have some sort of ritual, rituals are important for our brains to begin the grieving process. Otherwise it's, it's tricky. Yeah. I love that rituals and power behind rituals. Cause I think the very unused, underused in Western society rituals, yeah. it's such a sort of Eastern society thing in an amazing way in so many different cultures, you know, meditate every day at this time in like India and you know, all these different things. But we seem to have rituals on completely the wrong things. Like <laughs> <laughs> ritualistic doom scrolling. Literally, it's like, I'm going to wake up and look at my phone. Well, that's a crap ritual, isn't it? <laughs> it's right. But it is a ritual. So we're do whether or not you think they're super woo or whatever, we all are ritualistic in our lives. I'm so glad you said that every day you're either conscious of it and choosing it or you're unconsciously just doing it. So if we're doing rituals every day anyway, why not make them conscious and then make a choice about them? What are your favorite three rituals? Ooh, your questions are like my favorite that I've ever been asked. These are so good. <laughs> okay. So my first favorite ritual is morning pages. Julia Cameron, who wrote the book, The Artist's Way. They're just three like stream of consciousness, nonsensical, just write whatever's in your head. It's the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning. I do it as many mornings as I can over the past, I don't know, 15 years. I've done it more mornings than I've not done it. And they are powerful. Like that's a really, really really good ritual. And my morning coffee with my dog ritual, like I'm really big on morning rituals are so, so important. And um, end of the week, I like to take a bath and sort of like dunk myself in to like cleanse off everything that I absorbed during the week. And I'm a big bath person. Oh, same. A salt bath with me. Are just mm -hmm. <laughs> uh -huh. I use a lot of salt. Yes. <laughs> I love that. So, okay, trauma, obviously, like we said, you can really grow from it if we you know, have the right tools and manage to get ourselves into that space where we use it to actually benefit our lives, not just be this part of our lives that was horrific and damaging to us at the time. So do you believe that there's any part of not manifesting our own trauma in any way, but fate in some larger traumas to then develop you into the person that you were meant to be? Oh, as far as the fate question goes and self-determination and free will, that's like an existential rabbit hole that I won't even begin to go down. It's again, that's such a personal question. Like, how do you contend with the reality of evil in the world? How do you make sense of the reality of death and disease and pain? And that's kind of a spiritual question that I think everyone needs to, at some level, figure out what do they believe for themselves? Well, you good because you'll have to answer my next question. That I ask every guest, which is, "What does spirituality personally mean to you?" <laughs> it's 
Spirituality to me is the process by which I connect with myself and with the thing that's greater than myself that we're all connected to. What does it look like? That changes on a daily basis. It's like today it might be I take a bath. Tomorrow it might be I play with crystals. The next day it might be that I do a business plan and I make sales calls. It's like anything that brings you closer to connection with yourself and the thing that's greater than all of us, that's spirituality what it looks like can vary wildly from day to day, but that's what it means to me. Yeah. I love that. I have a similar, a similar um, definition. So in your terms of your own spiritual practice, have you found that spirituality has been a help in your own journey of healing what you've managed to heal within yourself? I do. I don't really know. Spirituality doesn't have to be God. It doesn't have to be religion. But I don't think there are any unspiritual people because we are all believing in something. We are all putting our faith and trust in something. So I don't know anybody who can heal without consciously asking themselves, is the thing I'm putting my faith and trust in working for me? And if it is, cool. And if it's not, what would I rather be doing with my trust and my faith and all of that? But I, I fundamentally believe we are all spiritual. And you can't heal without connection. And if spirituality is connection, then no. So it's required in some capacity. Yeah, I love that. So to finish, obviously my podcast is called Unstressable. So I love to ask people this, um, you know, we're always going to be in stress and different traumas and different things in our life. But what do you believe helps us to become more unstressable? <sighs> Honesty about who we are and what we want. Cause I could sit here and do lots of good looking things and shiny looking things. But like if, if circumstances was where our peace lie, successful people would all be happy and fit people would all be happy and rich people would all be happy. And clearly they are not. So I think that to really get into a lower stress, more contentment, more joy, you need to know who you are and what you want. Because if you don't, you're not going to know what boundaries to set and you're not going to know where to invest your time and invest your energy. And it's not popular, but asking yourself, what am I actually about? What do I value? What do I need? What do I want? And what's available to me to help me get it? I think that's a pretty good recipe for getting to yeah. that less stress thing. I love that. I think it's true. It's just a lot of people, we don't even ever ask ourselves the question of who am I? And often answer just with the labels that society's given us. But just taking that time, like you say, to actually really answer that question and understand yourself on a better level just can really work miracles in our lives really at the end of the day. Agree. <laughs> a thousand percent agree. Oh, well, Britt, thank you so much. It's been so wonderful having you on and hearing all about your own story and just the incredible work you now do and trauma just as a different topic for people and thought of in a different way. So thank you so much for sharing everything. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode with the wonderful Brit. If you did enjoy it, then please share it in your stories on social media, share it with your friends, tag us. We would love to hear from you and click download and subscribe so you don't miss out on our next incredible guest helping you to become unstressable. Stay tuned.